certainly counted a joy and a privilege to be able to be back and worship God one more time on this first day of the week. I trust that your day has been a blessed day and that you in some small way, that all of us in some small way have done something to glorify the Lord. And I trust that is indeed what we were able to accomplish this day. I tell you what I'm going to do this evening. I, I, I'm going to present something that I, I, I intend to, be, to make a challenge for all of us. Because I, I, I tell you why I say this, because I think a lot of times we lose the concept of why a local church exists in a certain area. I think sometimes we believe that, that the local church exists to give us a place to be able to go and worship God a couple of times on Sunday and maybe have a Bible study on Wednesday and, and you know, really basically that, uh, that, that is about it. But that is only a very small, small part of why a local church exists. Now, to do that, I want to set it up by reading something with you from the book of Acts. Now, I'm going to encourage you to take your Bibles out and follow along with our study. Most of the things that we're going to be talking about will live from the book of Acts. Now, we're going to bring in some, some supporting scriptures, but nevertheless, the book of Acts is going to be where we spend a lot of our, our time studying this, this evening. I want to begin in chapter 1 and just look at the first three verses of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. The writer... Uh, whom it, who is Luke, uh, writes, The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's referring back to his first volume, which we refer to as the Gospel of Luke. That's the former account. And he said, uh, So I, I, you know, I did this, I wrote about the things, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now we're going to walk away from that just a little bit, uh, but I'll, I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But one of the things I want to do to kind of begin this, I, I want to share with you a fable. Now when I tell you that it's a fable, understand that it's not the truth. It is just simply a fable to illustrate something that I want to illustrate during the course of this lesson. But the fable goes something like this. That prior to Jesus coming to this earth to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of humanity, he was strolling through heaven. And he was talking with an angel as he was strolling through heaven. And remember, this is a fable. And while Jesus was talking with this angel, he was explaining to the angel what he was attempting to do by his sacrifice upon the earth and the salvation of lost humanity. And the angel said, well, how are you going to bring this about? And Jesus said, well, after my sacrifice, he said, when one person learns of the sacrifice and what to do to be saved, that person is going to be saved. And then that person is going to turn around and teach somebody else how to be saved, and that person will be saved. And then that person will teach another and another and another and another. And in this way, we, we, we find the world is evangelized or the world is drawn to me. And the angel said to Jesus in this fable, well, now that sounds good, but what is your backup plan in case that doesn't work? And Jesus in this fable tells the angel, there is no backup plan. If this isn't carried out this way, then the world will not be evangelized. And when we look in the book of, uh, in the Gospels rather, 
we find that in each of the three what is referred to as synoptic gospels, they all end with what is often referred to as the Great Commission, really an illustration on how to carry out what I was talking about in this fable, the conversion of the world. In Matthew's account of the Great Commission, he records in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, that these disciples were to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Notice that they were to disciple all the nations. Now Mark's account of the Great Commission, while it varies a little bit in verbiage, it's saying the, the exact same thing. Preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Who he believes not, who he believes not will be condemned. Now Luke's account of the Great Commission varies somewhat in, in verbiage, but nevertheless there is this same idea of converting the world. He said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44 that beginning at Jerusalem you are to preach the remission of or preach repentance for the remission of sins, and that begins in Jerusalem and is to go throughout the world. This was the way that God intended the gospel to be spread. It was the way that God intended for men and women to become Christians. Now what begins in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3? When Jesus was revealing himself and preaching things concerning to the kingdom of God, we leap forward to the 28th chapter of the book of Acts and verse 31, and we find that, that now Paul in Acts 28 and verse 31, the great apostle Paul was in, was in Rome, and you know what he was doing while he was under two years of house arrest in Rome? He was preaching things concerning the kingdom of God. And so we find that the book of Acts is actually an unfolding of the spread of the gospel. Beginning in Jerusalem. And then we find in Acts chapter 28 and verse 31, it was continuing in the city of Rome. Now, I, I want us to stop and think about something. We often look at the book of Acts and we get to Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, and we, you know, maybe turn a page and we think, where's the rest of this story? It, it just seems like it just stops abruptly. That there ought to be in Acts 29. We ought to be able to read about something else occurring. These disciples were going about preaching the gospel. But in fact, the book of Acts ends in Acts chapter 28. That's all we have. But I've got to tell you something. That's not the end of the story. We exist today to continue the story of salvation. Local churches exist today in order to continue the spread of the gospel. If we're not continuing that spread, then we're not part of the legacy that we ought to be a part of. We're writing, as it were, the rest of the story. And that ought to be something that challenges each and every one of us. You know, see... What we've got to understand, what we've got to realize is that that has been passed on to us. It didn't die in Acts 28 and verse 31. It is something that continues to be passed on to us. What we're doing is writing the rest of the story. And how are we doing that? What is being said about the efforts that we in the 21st century church are putting forth to spread the gospel? the words of salvation throughout lost humanity. I want you to stop and think for just a moment about first century evangelism. Now, I just want you to, to, to stop and just, just wrap your mind around this just a little bit. 
Because what began with 120 disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, that's what we have in Acts 1. We have after Jesus spent three and a half years upon this earth preaching the gospel of things concerning the kingdom of God at his crucifixion and at his resurrection, we find 120 disciples. And so what began with 120 disciples in Acts 2 and verse 41, we find swelling now to about 3,000. What are they doing? They're, they're teaching people how to become Christians. And you see now the spread of the gospel. And then in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, now we find it increased to 5,000 men. The women were not even numbered, just the heads of the household. It could have been double this amount. We don't know. But we know that about 5,000 men now had become Christians. And so we see the increase of the gospel. The number multiplied in Acts 6 and verse 7. Now in Acts 21 and verse 20, we find that many thousands now had become Christians. Well, we read on in the book of Acts and we find, or in the Bible, and we find in Colossians 1 and verse 6 that when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, which was about 35 years after the church had its beginning, we find now Paul said that the gospel had reached all of the world, that is all of the Mediterranean world. Had, had, had access to the gospel of Christ. Paul said in Colossians 1 and verse 23 that the gospel had touched every creature. What did Jesus say in Mark's account of the Great Commission? You know, preach the gospel to every creature. Paul said it has been done in 35 years. In that generation, the gospel had reached every creature. And it's estimated by the close of the first century that there were upwards, and some people think it's a conservative estimate, there were upwards to a million people who had become Christians. What started with 120 at the conclusion of the first century, in 70 years, you have now a million disciples being made. Now, you know, I, I got to tell you, what, what, we find, what we've just discovered there is really a, a breakdown of the book of Acts. And it's an amazing breakdown. Look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus tells these disciples how it's going to come about. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Repentance and remission of sins begin in the city of Jerusalem. And then, he, then what does he say in that verse? And in all Judea, you see there's the spread. They're now outside the city of Jerusalem. In all Judea and in Samaria, regions even beyond that, and to the end of the earth. And they accomplished that in their generation. They were able in their generation to preach the gospel throughout that particular region. Now, when we think about that, we, we, we're at least I am, I am astonished at their success. But I'll tell you what is even more astonishing about that is that they were able to do that unlike us. They didn't have Sundays off. Those Christians did not have laws that were favorable to Christianity. They didn't have comfortable church buildings like we have that have heat in the winter and cooling in the summer. They didn't have God-fearing political leaders. They didn't even have access to complete Bibles. And they certainly did not have books that detail how churches are to grow. And they didn't have seminars along those lines. They didn't have radio. They didn't have television. They certainly didn't have cameras and videos and, and the internet or anything like that. I'll tell you what they had. They had great opposition. They had great persecution. And you know what? They were still successful in the spread of the gospel. 
Now let me now challenge each of us. Have we picked up that banner? How are we doing? How is the church doing today in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's why we are existing. You know, it was said of them that they've turned the world upside down. And I've got to tell you, it seems to me to be a sad time that Christians are not involved in turning the world upside down. In order for us to do that, in order for us to turn the world upside down, we're going to have to let the Lord turn us upside down. And when the Lord turns us upside down, he's going to upset the views that we have about Christianity, upset the views that we have about life, and upset the views that we have about others. And this is just the reality of it. How did they do this? How were they able, with all that we've talked about thus far this evening, how were they able to accomplish this? And I tell you, I'm going to show you some things in the scriptures, and especially from the book of Acts, as to how they went about accomplishing that. What they did in the spread of the gospel is they began by trusting God's power to save. And I'm going to tell you something, that is very, very important. Remember going back to verse 8 of chapter 1. He tells these apostles, he said, you know what? When you receive power, after which the, or when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, this is what you're going to be able to accomplish. Now let me stop and say something about this. I understand contextually here what he's talking about. He is talking about when the Holy Spirit, those apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit there in the, in the city of Jerusalem. This is revealed to us in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And I'll not read all of those verses, but they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, these apostles, now they didn't have complete Bibles. They didn't have copies of the New Testament like you and I have. No, what they had was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gave them the knowledge that they needed. Jesus promised in John 16 and verse 13 that when they received the Holy Spirit, they would be able to be guided or led into all the truth. And this is precisely what was happening. These disciples, upon the reception of the Holy Spirit, were led into all the truth. And I'll tell you what they did with that truth. They verbalized it. They spoke it. They went about preaching the gospel. But in addition to that, they were able to write it down and preserve it in this book we call the New Testament. Paul said, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3, How that by revelation he, that is God, made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in a few, he said, When I, I received that mystery, I received it by inspiration of the Spirit. He said, I wrote it down. And what can we do? When you read, you may understand my knowledge into the mystery of Christ. And I'm going to tell you something about that word, ladies and gentlemen. That word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that word that came with power when those apostles received the Holy Spirit, when that word was preached, it became the power of God to save. Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power. You know, it's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in, verse, and in verse 21, he said it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. This word of God is all the power that we need to see people, who, see people converted to the Lord. 
We've got to begin trusting this power to save. Now, I'm going to show you something. After these apostles received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, I hear people running around today. Oh, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we need to have the Spirit come upon us. We need to have the Spirit come miraculously upon us, and then we'll be able to convert the world. No. The Holy Spirit has already inspired men who wrote down the words of the Holy Spirit, and this is the power of God to salvation. And I'm going, to tell, I'm going to show you something. After Peter and the others received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice what happened. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. Now remember, he's about to be guided into all the truth. Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And what? And heed my words. He didn't say, get down on your knees and expect the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, listen to what I have to tell you. Listen to my words. And then he preached Jesus. He preached a sermon about Jesus Christ. And he concluded that sermon by saying that God has made this same Jesus that you crucified, that he raised from the dead, he has made him both Lord and Christ. Now look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, what did they hear? They heard these words of salvation. They heard the power of God to save. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them what to do. He told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is not just to you, but to your children and all who are far off. This is a promise that we have. And you know what? Look at verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, What? Be saved from this perverse generation. Drop down to verse 47. And you know what they were doing? The Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. And I'm going to tell you, here's what's happening. What's happening today is there are a lot of people, preachers, elders, churches, across the width and breadth of this great land, who lost their uh, respect for the power of God's word. We need something in addition to God's word we're hearing today. That's not going to do it. This is not the 1950s. You preachers are lost in the 50s. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to get up with the times. We need something for young people. We need something for older people. We need something for the singles. And we need to minister to the divorced. And we need to do all of these other things. And they're doing everything. They're busting guts to try to find something to convert people when they've ignored the power of God's word. This is all that's needed to convert people in this area and throughout the world. This is God's great power to save. And yet we've lost respect for it. We're trying to do everything in the world to augment God's word. We're trying to do everything in the world to support it, to elevate it. And all we need to do is to preach it. We don't, you know, people, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Church, church will grow if, 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 if maybe we can just have a, have, have a newer and a nicer building. If we, you know, kind of like, 
kind of like the field of dreams, you know, if we build it, people will come. And so we want this great big cathedral type building with stained glasses and all of these other things that are very attractive to people. Is that what's going to do it? Well, we need big name preachers. We need preachers with degrees after their names. We need preachers who, who've been to seminary. We need preachers who are able to relate and, and, and all of that to this group or to that group. Is that what we need? You look at what they did in the first century, I'll tell you what they did in the first century. They just simply trusted God's great power to save. And they went about preaching the word. And they went about using God's great power to save. Now notice in Acts 4 and in verse 35. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You know, I'm going to tell you something. It's not the large cathedrals. It's not the big name preachers. It's not the glibness of the speaker. It's the power that is in the word of God. And I'll tell you, you, you yeah, I'm going to show you what they were doing. I'm going to show you how, how they were being so successful here. In Acts chapter 5, and, and, and we look at, at about verse 28 we find that these people were filling Jerusalem with the doctrine of Christ. Now, if you want to see people converted, you begin to fill the city with the teachings of Jesus Christ. You begin on a daily basis teaching the word of God because that is God's power to save. And that's exactly what they were doing in the first century. I'm going to tell you a big difference in, in my estimation between Christians then and many Christians today. To those people in the first century who were filling the city of Jerusalem and other cities with the doctrine of Christ, to them the church was not a club. The church was not a social entity. The church was not a filler. The church was not about themselves. Have you ever heard anybody use the expression, well, you know, I just didn't get anything out of church today. I went to church and I didn't even feel like I've been to church. I went to church and I didn't get anything out of that sermon and I just don't feel like... You know what the problem is? When I make a, a, a comment like that or I hear a comment like that, you know what I'm hearing? It's about me. It is about me. Give me something that makes me feel good. It wasn't that way with these Christians. It was not about themselves. It was a passion that they had for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, you, you ever notice? Do you ever notice in the scriptures sometimes some of the terminology that's used in reference to the church? You, you take in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2 when Saul of Tarsus was, uh, was persecuting the church. He was, he was persecuting the way. T-H-E-W-A-Y. He persecuted the way. Now I'm not advocating that we tear our signs down and write up the way. I'm not saying that. But I do think it's interesting that the early church was referred to sometimes as the way. In Acts 18 and verse 26, the way of God. Why was it called that? Was it called that by the enemies, by themselves? Who, you know, why, why was it called the way? I'm going to tell you the connection that I made in my mind. It was called the way because of something Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6. I, he said, am the way. I am the way. It was their connection to Christ. 
They were part of the way because it was all about Jesus. And they were willing to give up their possessions and they were willing to give up their homes. In some instances, they had to give up their jobs and their families and even their own lives. When you've got that kind of commitment to the Lord, you will not hesitate to fill the city with his doctrine. And when we do, according to Acts 6 and verse 7, the word of God will grow and multiply greatly. Daily teaching results in daily conversions. Now, how did they do it? They trusted his power to save. They didn't apologize for it. They didn't try to support it with something other than the word. They just simply spread the word. But secondly, they were bold in the face of all opposition. You know, I, I want you to notice now, go over to chapter 4 once again. In, in, in chapter 4, everything, you know, they, 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 they were preaching the word, the gospel was spreading, people were being baptized, people were being converted to the Lord, but uh-oh, now they got a problem. Now they have run into opposition from the powers that be. Now there, Peter and John are called up and said, whoa, whoa, hold it, guys. This is enough. Now you're going about spreading this, this doctrine throughout the city, and you're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and, and that we're responsible. You've you got to stop this. And so look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 4. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. So they call in these disciples of the Lord. They call in the apostles and say, all right, guys, here's what it is. They called them in and commanded them not to speak at all nor to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. You, you can't do that. You've got to stop it. Let's put a stop to this. What would we do? What would we do in the 21st century church if that happened? If, let's say, the governor or the president or this official or that official or the police department or the FBI came here and told this congregation and every congregation throughout the width and breadth of this land, all right, guys, stop it. Let's stop preaching Jesus. Let's stop worshiping God. Let's shut it down. Let's turn it off. Quit it. Stop it. What would we do? What would we do? We, 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 I, I, I tell you what would happen in a lot of places, and I don't know what would happen here, but I tell you exactly what's going to happen in a lot of places. What's going to happen is that first thing we're going to do is call a business meeting. And we're going to get together in this business meeting and we're going to say, whoa, whoa, now, what are we going to do? What, what, what are we going to do now? You, you know what we've got? You know, Romans 13 tells us we've got to obey the laws of the land. So you know what we're going to do? We can't have any more gospel meetings. We can't have any more worship periods. We can't be talking about Jesus. We can't be, you know, spreading this word. We, we can't do that. What did these disciples do? They were threatened. The government, the powers that be, said, you're going to have to stop this preaching. You know, I, I remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. He told these Ephesian brethren, you pray for me. You pray for me that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray that I will have the courage to obey the Lord. Peter and John said, listen, here's what we're going to do. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, 
you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Do we not understand? Do we not understand, according to Revelation 21 and verse 8, that the cowardly, the timid, the fearful will be cast into the lake of fire, will be lost? Have we not understood that? Our society has geared us, has, has conditioned us in such a way as we're scared. We lack boldness. We, 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 we just simply are not willing to stand up with Peter and John and say, I'm going to obey God. I cannot but speak the things which we have seen and which we have heard. It was kind of like, a, kind of like I heard about a fellow one time. He's an elder in the church. And he would vacation with somebody that was a good friend of his that he worked with. And they'd vacation together maybe once a year. And I, I come to find out as he would tell me when he'd come back from his vacation that this, this fellow that he vacationed with was not a Christian. And I said to my friend, I said, well, I guess that, I, I, I guess that uh, sort of has some real interesting conversations while you're all on vacation. He said, oh, no, no. He said, we, we, we don't ever talk about the Bible. We don't ever talk about religion because we're too good of friends and we don't want to fall out about religion. Now, I, I'm, am I missing something here? Am I, are you afraid to speak to someone because you're afraid of what their response is going to be? Peter said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and which we have heard. And so these disciples... These disciples, upon hearing that, they made a determination. This is what we're going to do. But I, I, I'm going to show you before they, before, after that, when they, when they were let go, i tell you what they did. They, they did call the church together. And they didn't have a business meeting and decide, okay, we're not going to meet anymore. We're not going to have any preaching anymore. We're not going to have any gospel meetings anymore. We're not going to study the Bible. They didn't do that. Look at verse 29. Here's what they did. They had a prayer meeting. And when they gathered the Christians together and had this prayer meeting, here was their prayer. They said, now, Lord, look on their threats. Now, he didn't go on to say, look on their threats and make them like us. He didn't say, look on their threats and make those threats go away. They didn't say that. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. This is the courage that we're going to have to have. We can't be intimidated into being quiet. Is it going to offend the, uh, you know, the gay community? It may. Is it going to be accusing us of, uh, of hate speech? It might do just that. Is it going to cause someone to uh, maybe lose his or her job? Or, uh, you know, what? We, well, we cannot cower from doing this. What, what, the powers of darkness are wanting to silence us. Don't we understand that? And when we cave to that silence and we're afraid to speak up for the Lord and we're afraid to teach somebody, we're afraid to tell somebody how we, what we believe about the Bible, I'm going to tell you, my friends, we are losing and we're not going to be able to spread the gospel. Will we be persecuted? Perhaps. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We may. We might lose a friend. 
We might lose a, a, you know, somebody in the family may have nothing to do with us anymore. That's a possibility. But I cannot, I'm, I'm with Peter and John, I cannot but speak the things that I have seen and heard. And I'm not going to cower away in, in silence. You know, i got to tell you, you know, we talk about the cancel culture, cancel culture and all of that. I have been canceled. There are several of my sermons that you cannot pull up on the Internet anymore and look at. I know that, and I understand that. But I'll tell you what, I'm with Peter and John. I cannot but speak the things that I've seen and heard. And I would to God that brethren all over the width and breadth of this land would have that determination. We're not going to be silenced when it comes to the teaching of God's word. Those Christians in the first century were threatened. They were beaten. They were killed. And yet the gospel prevailed. The only thing that can, that, that can hamper the spread of the gospel is not persecution. No, we've got to understand that persecution cannot and has not ever been able to to, to thwart the will of God. But I tell you what does. Apathy. Unconcern. These things will kill local churches. Persecution won't. Look in chapter 12. Of, of, of Acts. Now it was at this time that Herod the king. Stretched out his hand to harass some. From the church. James was killed. Peter was thrown into prison. Persecution was hard and it was intense and it was severe. Well, what happened? Look at, the, look at verse 24 of that same chapter. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Persecution cannot kill the church. Apathy kills the church. Silence kills the church. Let us be strong. Let us be bold. Even in the face of all opposition. You know, sometimes we... We, 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 we talk about these young preachers, and, and, and I appreciate these young guys. I do. God bless them. These young preachers who, who will go to a congregation, and they will preach something that needs to be preached, and even though it causes them to be discharged by that church. That church may ask them to leave. And we'll look at those young men like that, and we'll pat them on the back, and we'll say, God bless you, young man, for your faith and your determination, and for you're not willing to bend to the likes and dislikes of men. And sometimes the very ones of us who have them are patting them on the back are ourselves afraid to say anything at work or in the neighborhood. And yet we commend those guys. I think they need to be commended. But I think at the same time we need to do a, you know, a good soul searching. Where is my boldness on this chart? If we want to spread the gospel, trust in God's power to save, be bold in the face of all opposition. And then I'll tell you what. You need to make or allow the gospel to make drastic changes in your life. What is it Paul said that if we're in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, we're what? If we're in Christ, we're what? We're a new creation. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, if we've been baptized into Christ, we're raised to walk in newness of life. The old man, the old life of sin has been put away. We're no longer the kind of person that we used to be. We no longer do the things that we used to do. We no longer go to the places we used to go. There's been a 180 degree change in our lives. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something. If, 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 if people don't see that change in our lives, 
That they don't, they're not going to listen to anything we've got to say. They're not going to attend any meeting that we have. They're not going to be interested in being included in anything that we're trying to do. Because in order for them to be attracted to what you say, they have to see that what you say has changed the way you used to be. It's as simple as that. I, 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 you, you know, look at the Apostle Paul. Saul was a great persecutor of, of, of the church. He, he was responsible for the death uh, of many people, many more than just Stephen. And, but, and, but I tell, and he was breathing threats and murders against the disciples in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. But you know what? When he was converted, he didn't allow that persecution to taper off. It stopped. And as a matter of fact, he began to preach and build up that which he had previously tried to tear down according to verses 26, 7, and 8 of Acts chapter 9. And all I'm trying to point out is there was a drastic change in his life. And so people are going to have to see what it does to you. Your husband not a Christian? Has he seen in you that the Lord Jesus Christ means more to you than anything else on this earth? If he hasn't seen that, don't expect your husband to ever be converted. Your wife is not a Christian? Does she see in you what the gospel has done, how it's changed you? You no longer do the things you used to do, say the things you used to say, and be the kind of person that you... Yeah, I tell you what, if she doesn't see that, then your chances are nil in ever seeing her obey the gospel. And parents, parents, you know, we're concerned about our children. What do they see at home? Do they see at home that there are changes in mom and dad's lives? You know, if they don't see that, then it's not going to do any good when they're about 13 or 14 to try to push them into the baptistry. Oh, you might get them there, but I'll tell you what, I'm not sure how much conversion has taken place here because they are soaking up what they have seen at home. They've got to see that the gospel has removed from us sin, ungodliness, hate, and bigotry and unconcern. All of these things have got to be, must have been washed away in the waters of baptism in order for us to be able to make any inroads in teaching others. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts this as he again wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. He said in verse 22 of Ephesians 4, You put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, Jr. that sounds good. I've heard that before. I've read that before. We've had that in Bible classes and yada, 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 and on and on and on. What does that look like? Well, he tells us what it looks like. He tells us exactly how it looks. He said in verse 25, okay, let's start here. Put away lying. You used to tell falsehoods. You used to, used to fudge on your income tax. Used to make false claims to the insurance company. Used to tell the telemarketer that you're not here. And all of these other things. He quit lying. You stop lying. You used to do that. You don't do that anymore. You speak the truth. Well, the truth might hurt somebody. Okay, it might. But you speak the truth with one another. Always speak the truth. Whether you're talking to somebody about, you know, about business or you're talking to somebody about something you want to buy, something you want to sell, whatever it is, you speak the truth. That's what it looks like. You put on the new man. You used to tell lies. You don't tell lies anymore. Well, he says this in verse 26. Be angry. Now, you're going to get angry. There are going to be things that upset you. But do not sin. And don't hold a grudge. Don't let the sun 
go down on your wrath. Used to be, you know, I hear people tell me, you know what, I've just got, I got a temper. I've always had a temper. And you know what, that's just the way that I am. My daddy had a temper, my granddaddy had a temper, and I got a temper too, and it's just part of our family DNA. No, it's not. No, it is not. It is something that you can put away. You don't lash out. You used to lash out at people. You don't do that anymore. You used to lose your temper. You don't lose your temper anymore. You used to be revengeful. You're not revengeful anymore. You don't see the anger. You know, I read something about a fellow. He said, you know what? He said, uh, he said I'm going to tell you how Jesus changed me. He said, I used to be driving down the road since somebody cut off in front of me or somebody get real slow. And he said, that just, that, you know, that's what we call road rage. And he said, you know, I just used to get so angry and I'd lay on that horn and I'd shoot around them and I'd cut them off and I'd get back at them. He said, but you know what? He said, I don't do that anymore. He said, people still cut me off. And he said, people still, you know, get in front of me and go real slow when they ought to be speeding up and I need to get through that light. He said, these things happen. But he said, rather than getting angry, he said, I say a prayer and say, thank you, Lord, for letting me show people kindness. And that may be just a simple thing. But what he's saying is, I've made a 180 degree turn. The gospel has changed me. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer. Don't do this. Stop it. You, you stop that. You, you, don't, you don't live that way anymore. Now you get a job. Now you work, labor with your hands so that you're able to share with those or give to those who have a need. So you see, there are things that we do that are different. Let no corrupt communicate, no, no corrupt word, rather, in verse 29, proceed out of your mouth. You don't talk ugly to your wife anymore, to your husband, to your children, to your neighbor. You don't do those kinds of things. And when somebody can see in you the changes that the gospel has provided, then they're going to listen. They want to hear what you've got to say. How did that happen to you? There's a boy that came by the house. It's been several years ago. And he, he spent a little time. He, he, I got to know him in a gospel meeting somewhere, and he came up from Tennessee and spent some time with us. And while he was there, he said, you know, J.R., I'd like to study with you. And I said, what is it you'd like to talk about or study about? He said, well, I, he said, I'm going with this girl. And said, so she, she goes to a church that uses an instrument of music. And, and Brother J.R., I've been trying to talk to her about what the Bible says about worship and singing without an instrument of music. He said, can you kind of help me with this? I said, well, sure. And so we study these, these verses, and I give him some verses and, and, and you know, some pointers and, and talking to her when he gets back home. Well, we talk, you know, we, we get to talking after that, and, and, and I want to talk to him about how serious they are in their relationship and what they think the relationship is going to lead to. Well, during the course of this conversation, he reveals something to me. He reveals to me that they're sleeping together. They're sleeping together. They're committing fornication. They're committing sin. And I say to him, wait a minute. You're trying to teach her that it's sinful to use an instrument of music and you two are fornicating together? I said, young man, you might as well shut your Bible and shut your mouth because she's not going to listen to a word you've got to say because you are nothing but a hypocrite. And we're not going to be able to convert somebody. We're not going to be able to lead somebody to the Lord if they haven't seen changes in our lives unless they see in us that we are a new creation. 
That's what they were able to see in the first century. These disciples made a 180 degree. Peter denied the Lord three times. And now we say in the book of Acts, he's willing to die for the Lord. That's a 180 degree change. But let's notice one other thing. If we want to have the success that they had, we're going to have to reach out to all the lost. No matter who the lost is. We've got to reach out to them. Remember what Peter said. He tells them in verse 38 of chapter 2 that they need to repent and obey the gospel. He said, the promise to you, your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is everybody. Regardless of one's color, one's ethnicity, and regardless of one's sin. We've got to re reach out to these people. You look in the book of Acts. You see, you see what happens. You, you know, in Acts chapter 8, you find the, the conversion of the Samaritans, a hated hybrid people, you know, religiously and, and racially mixed. But they obeyed the gospel. The gospel was for them. You also read in Acts 8 of an Ethiopian and African being, being, being converted to the Lord. It, it was it, everybody. Acts 10, Cornelius and his household, Gentiles. And every one of us ought to be happy with that, about that because that's what we are. You know, Gentiles and Jews, you know, they used to be just broken down into two groups, Gentiles and Jews. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. But now it's open to everybody. And you look in Acts chapter 24 and verses 25 or 22 through 25, you find that, that, that Paul was preaching the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. And here were two wicked people, two people living in open sin. Drusilla was Herod Agrippa first. Uh, daughter and you know, I got to tell you this, this this is a wicked couple here and in Acts 26 when you read about Agrippa and Bernice you know they, they were do you know they were brother and sister living in open incest and yet Paul is trying to persuade them to be a Christian not save them in their sin but save them from their sin We've got to be that willing to reach out to people no matter who they are, no matter what sin that they're involved in. But when we arbitrarily decide that someone is not worthy of the gospel of Christ, we are committing sin. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I don't think we ought to talk to this guy. He's in his third marriage. And I don't think we ought to talk to this gal. You know, she, she's a lesbian. And, you know, those people don't change. And we can't talk to this guy because he, he's gay and we, we know those people just, just won't change. Really? I've just made an arbitrary, I've just set myself up in the position of God and made a judgment that I have no idea if there's any truth to that at all. I have talked to people who have been in an unscriptural marriage and they have left those unscriptural marriages. Don't tell me people will not do what needs to be done for the sake of the gospel. And have we read 1 Corinthians 6? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that, you know, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists a number of unrighteous people. He lists murderers. He lists fornicators. He lists adulterers. He lists homosexuals. And he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a change had taken place. All souls are precious to the Lord. He died for all men. The early Christians understood that. And they believed the power of the word. They were bold in the face of opposition. 
the gospel had made 180 degree changes in their lives. And they reached out to everybody who was lost. Not everybody obeyed, but they reached out to everybody. This is our challenge. This is something that we've got to take very seriously because we're writing the rest of the story. And we are here to evangelize the world. And through us, through us, the story continues. And if not us, then who? Jesus said in the fable, I have no backup plan. If this doesn't work, that's all that I have. So let's start with you tonight. Are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the precious gospel of our Lord? Have you been plunged into his blood and had your sins washed away? No matter how wicked you've been, no matter how stained with sin, your soul has been. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. If you will just surrender to him, believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Turn from sin. You know, I do this, and I probably did this the last time that I was here. I make this little gesture. And I do that because very often we don't use the word repentance in our everyday vernacular. But we use the meaning of that is to turn. And repentance is just simply a change of your mind that's brought about by godly sorrow. You're going in this direction, you stop. You make a U-turn, and now you're going back in this way. You're repenting toward God, and that's what it's about. So you do that. You leave a life of sin and ungodliness, and you confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. You can be baptized in water, raised to walk in newness of life, and then walk in that newness of life and join with us in our efforts to convert a lost and dying world to our Lord. The answer, the answer is not in politics. The answer is not in government. The answer is not in the court system. The answer to the problems throughout the world today is a lack of faith in Jesus Christ. There is where the answer lies. And let's do what we can to continue the story of salvation that began with 120 disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. 33 AD. You're subject to the invitation. We urge you to come right now. Together we stand as we sing.